My name is Michael Gayet, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the rough hour is Jonathan Wellham. Jonathan, introduce up to the audience and to me a bit more formally. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Yeah, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on the uh, program with you. Thank you very much for the invitation, Michael. Yeah, so I got involved in the mutual fund industry back in 1990. So about 34 years ago, and I got involved with uh, another very entrepreneurial gentleman called Michael Lee Chin. And he was, this is up in Canada, and uh, we just had two little funds, about $12 million in assets. And uh, we had this, this crazy idea that money should be run from a long-term compounding discipline perspective, like the way business people would run their money. And we, so we ran that uh, mutual fund company up to about $15 billion and then sold that to uh, Manulife in 2009, right distant during the financial crisis. He took some money off the table and reinvested it. And then uh, I started up my own company called Rocklink Investment Partners, which I now run uh, in 2010, right after we sold to Manulife. And then we just look after private wealth, um, families, uh, my own money and things like that. And uh, the last few years, we've been actually growing, started to expand and grow the business. I brought in some young guys, some CFAs, and uh, we're looking at expanding and providing opportunities for our investors. But we're basically... Been in the industry for 34 years. I consider myself more of a value investor, sort of try to look at the market three to five years, discipline, long-term compounding, and really more fundamental in terms of my analysis. Uh, and But obviously looking at the bigger picture because you have to always contextualize your investments. And so that's just a quick overview on myself and sort of my background. So as a value investor, you must love NVIDIA. <laughs> But this point of being a value investor, I think is important. First of all, let's define for the audience what uh, a value investor actually is, because I think a lot of people use terms like, oh, the stock's undervalued based on this chart. But I would think right. Prices. So what we attempt to do as best as possible, and Michael, you know this because you're in the industry and it's difficult. It's not easy. We try to evaluate and look at the company as if we were going to buy the whole thing. And so we'll look at a company, we look at the typically, typically, I think the the measure that we will use predominantly, not always, because it'll depend on the industry, will be the free cash flow of the business. So we will try to look at the free cash flow and then um, do a present value analysis of that. So we're going to try to look at the future, you know, cash flow of that business and then try to, you know, discount it back at a reasonable, you know, cost of capital and then try to buy the businesses below that, you know, the current valuation that the market seems to be putting on it. The exception to that would be, you know, hard asset businesses, real estate businesses, some of the mining companies, royalty companies, then we would look at sort of net asset value. But what we're trying to do is look at, you know, what would a rational person who was going to take a five to 10 year position in the company actually pay and expect, you know, above their, you know, your cost of capital rates of return. And so it's not short term at all. We're trying to look at things from a secular perspective. Where are some of the growth opportunities? So if you take an NVIDIA, good case in point, yeah, we don't own it. Great business, growing quickly, but you know, for us, you, the, the world has to really come together in a perfect way for many years to justify the valuation today, and that makes us nervous. It's also, you know, it is a commodity business, also to a certain degree. I mean, I know it's it's specialized, but there's other competitors can eventually come into that space also. So we want to be very careful in terms of businesses like that. And do we leave money on the table sometimes? Sure, but uh, we, we often will avoid the uh, the pitfalls of losing a lot of money also which uh, I've been through, you know, in 2009, not 2009, 1999, 2000, through the tech bubble. I mean, we, up in Canada, you know, we had a company called Nortel. And uh, Nortel was this business that everybody wanted to buy. It was going straight up. 
But if you did a 10-year cumulative, 10-year cumulative free cash flow analysis on their business, it never generated a cumulative 10-year you know, free cash flow at all in the business. And yet it was the highest value stock on the, on the Toronto stock market at one point and then went virtually to almost to zero. And so, uh, again, we go back to the fundamentals and we want to be careful and protect our investors' capital. All right. So that term you use, reasonable cost of capital, I want to push on um, five to 10-year outlook, reasonable cost of capital. I don't think in 2018, most people would have thought that rates would be where they are today right, or 2019. How do you even determine what's in quotes reasonable and how do you do that in the context of a very long time frame when you've got so much debt, got so many dynamics that throw off what the, uh, the real interest rate should be? It's a great question. And one of the biggest challenges the last number of years has been what I would refer to as the insanity of the, of the central banks and the zero interest rate policies or near zero interest rate policies and even the negative interest rates in, in the United States and not in the United States, in Europe where you had almost 15 trillion in, you know, in sovereign debt trading at negative yields. And that's nominal negative yields, you know, not even factoring any inflation. So yeah, so that's really changed in certain way, you know, the cost of money. But from our perspective, we would never adjust our models down to those kind of low numbers. So we've never taken numbers down below, you know, even in a really high quality company with a long-term, a long-standing franchise, great moat around the business, predictable business. We would never take the cost of capital down below 8%, even at the low. And we typically are 8 to 9%. And then companies that are higher risk, we're going to run you know, 10, 10, 11%, depending on the business. So we, we really haven't moved our cost of money around as much as, say, the market is pricing money, because we think that is just ridiculous and it's going to get you into trouble. And it's too generous in terms of valuing companies on the long term that we just can't stay at these kind of levels without doing severe damage to our economy, which, you know, which, as you know, we have done a certain amount of damage in keeping companies afloat that probably shouldn't have been afloat. And the cost of money does need to be higher if we're going to really run a productive and growing economy. She so says that finding real legitimate undervalued opportunities that it's easier in, in Canada versus the U.S. or that. There's more of an opportunity set outside of America's market. Yeah, um, the Canadian. The, we probably have sixty percent of our assets would be in U.S. based businesses because the U.S. market, being right next to us, is just so large and so deep and so wide compared to the Canadian market that we spend a great deal of our time in the U.S. companies. And many of, as you know, the top companies in the U.S. are also global companies. So. U.S. is very important uh, to us. And then in Canada, yeah, we have a handful of, of companies that we like in Canada, but they generally are fairly well global businesses also. And they tend to get priced fairly efficiently along with their American counterparts. And many of them trade on the New York Stock Exchange anyway, whether they're ADRs or other securities. And so and I would suggest that the pricing is pretty tight between the countries. And uh, I don't think there's that much differential when you're looking at companies and then, you know, certain valuations. Um, I mean, we're a bit more commodity based. And so when you look at the commodity space, some of the valuations there certainly appear to be a much more attractive than, say, the technology industry. And so in Canada, we will have more as a percentage of our businesses in the commodity space. And therefore, you know, you could argue that there's, you know, some better value there uh, currently. And, and in terms of globally, for us, because we're a relatively small team and we stay focused, we will invest and do have some holdings that would be European based. And, but we really don't get to in the, into the two far flung corners of the world because if we can't get there, travel there, understand those businesses, understand the culture, the people running it, 
the counting conventions, then we leave those up. We leave that space up to other people. We only need to have 25 to 30 great businesses. And we should be able to find those within North America and uh, also in, in, in the European context. That's good enough for us. All right. So let's go back to the cost of capital. I was under the impression, and I say this sarcastically, that when the cost of capital rises meaningfully, things are supposed to get harder for companies. And that means low and growth, lower margins, you know, layoffs, and widening credit spreads. I don't think anybody had on their bingo card that you go through the fastest rate hike cycle in history. And you'd actually be at cycle lows in terms of credit spreads, at least uh, in the U.S. I know Europe is different. What's happened in the last two, three years in terms of that dynamic? Why is it that default risk hasn't really increased when you look at the bond market itself? Whereas, you know, if you look at least in the U.S., all cap companies, zombie companies, they haven't done all that much because they're worried about higher rates. Why, why isn't the market not, not more concerned about refinancing risk? You know, it's a, it's a great question. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I can give you a very good answer to that other than a certain degree of liquidity in the marketplace. Um, when in, rates started to go up in uh, 2022, in the back half of 22, and then into you know, all, all of 23, yeah, I mean, we really tried to batten down the hatches, thinking that, look, you have a situation where the global debt is just off the charts. It's just done nothing but go up. After the debt crisis, they solve the debt crisis with more debt, as you know, and so forth. And so, and corporations are carrying a lot of debt and personal debt is off the charts. And in, in my own country, Canada, our personal debt is one of the worst in the world as a percentage of income. So it's about 175, 180% debt to income, which is, I think in the US, it may be 120, 130. So when you're thinking about that, yeah, you'd think that, that we should see all of the things that you talked about. We should see corporate debt costs go up. We should see high yield spreads increase and so forth. And I would suggest that we want to be prepared for that. And we want to be in companies that can weather increasing challenges because I just don't think the current situation is sustainable. And some of the, you know, the global trends are not healthy. I think that will put more stress on, on, on the bond market and, and on companies. And, and we're already seeing that in, with it, with the exception of the U.S. I mean, Canada is basically going sideways, no growth up here, if not shrinking a little bit. And uh, Europe is going sideways also. I mean, there's some countries are in recession is certainly not growing. And, and so I think that, you know, we will see, well, we, we've got to see some impact on businesses and profitability uh, to a greater extent going forward. And in our view, but uh, why it hasn't happened as fast. And I'm also very surprised in terms of uh, what's happened last year. Yeah. I don't, I, I think it's that further. I think that relates very much to demand for gold, maybe demand. Bitcoin to some extent, although the ETF dynamics throw it off. But you know, when I think about debt, my mind immediately goes to counterparty risk, right? The more the debt is, the more likely that you're not going to get paid fully on what you've lent to that, that debt holder. So counterparty risk goes up. And I think that's really ultimately kind of the argument for owning uh, gold and, as I mentioned, owning Bitcoin. Let's talk about gold because yeah. you've got quite a bit of experience there. First of all, is, it, is my understanding of the thinking correct on gold? Because a lot of people say it's an inflation-edged or value. I really view it very much on that counterparty risk side of things. Yes, no, I agree. I agree. I, you know, I try not to get involved in making predictions. I mean, I don't know exactly where the price is going to go, but it does hold value. And when we talk to our our investors, what we're concerned about is purchasing power in a hedge that will be there, that will maintain its value over time if things are not holding their value in other areas. And it's it's that insurance. Now, I think the price, again, it's denominated in U.S. dollars. So it, whatever you're going to denominate it in, then if, it, you know, if the dollar is weak, then gold can go up a great deal. And certainly versus other currencies other than the U.S. dollar. So we view it also as a hedge and we try to build in 15, 18% of one's 
portfolio into a, a range of different companies that have exposure to the precious metals. And uh, we've done that for some time simply because of the debt levels. And it's, I don't know when the thing is going to pop or when there's going to be, you know, a, a major issue in the marketplace, but we know that it will come. And so in my view, and for our clients, we want to be there ahead of the game. Plus, we want to buy great companies that are still growing, even with the price of gold going sideways. There's still good cash flow businesses. They're making a good bit of money and doing well. But that's our view also on the gold. Again, it's a percentage, it's an allocation, it's there to offset other things that could be could go down a little bit in, in a market, you know, market volatility. And as I understand it, what you said, you, you get that exposure primarily through the royalty side, the royalty players. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaia here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. We have done that. Yeah, that's, I mean, back in the 1990s and through the 1990s, when I was uh, with, the, with the fund company, we became the largest institutional shareholders of Franco Nevada. And so I got to know Seymour Schulich and Pierre Lassant, who are the co-founders. Pierre, a little bit less, but Seymour quite well. And we loved those businesses because, again, as a value investor, what we're trying to do is find cash flow businesses. And so if you can be an investment banker to the gold sector or silver sector, in the case of Franco, they also have some oil royalties, some copper royalties and so on. But to us, that made a lot of sense because if you can do great deals and they can loan, they can you know, get a royalty and have a perpetual right to a great mine, then to us, that's a cash flow uh, you know, opportunity, good cash flow growing vehicle. And they don't have all of the, you know, the drilling risk and a lot of the, you know, the same level of political risk and managing the mines and so forth. So that's what I got into that and we did very well in the 1990s um, through Franco. And then when I started up Rocklink, we then went to some of the royalties again. We said, okay, for our first place to go would be the royalty companies because of safety, diversity. You've got, in some cases, several hundred royalties. So you don't get, you know, a massive exposure, just one spot, one location, one mine, one problem and so forth. And last, you know, and so that's what we've done. So we have positions in Franco, wheat and precious metals, some in Royal Gold, a little bit in Cisco. And more recently, we've been picking up a smaller company that we think is incredibly undervalued and run by some good people that will start to produce cash flow this year and quite a bit in the years ahead. And that would be Gold Royalty, G-R-O-Y, that trades in the U.S. And so that's our primary way. We do have a little bit in Agnico Eagle. We think that Sean Boyd and the, is a great manager. And the assets that Agnico has are largely in Canada, Australia, United States. And so from a political risk perspective, good locations and the mines are some of the best in the world. And so that's the way we played it. Speaking about free cash flow of all the sectors to focus in on, I'm going to imagine oil and gas is key to that. Free cash flow tends to be very high there. Was a hell of a sector in 2022, not so much in 2023. What are your thoughts on oil and gas here, separating out the two separately? Because again, I go back to, I thought the cost of capital meant free cash flow mattered more. 
And mm-hmm. if that's the case, why is it that energy stocks are just not really having that persistence? Yeah, it's a, it, again, it's a great question. Well, our view is that, you know, valuation will be recognized over time. It's the old expression, I'm sure you've heard many times, where Ben Graham says, you know, the market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. And so we constantly try to just try to get the right weights and then be patient. Um, get the right companies, get the right valuation. So in our view, the oil and gas sectors is an interesting one. Yeah, we've built uh, well, probably about 10%, 10, 11% of our portfolio would be exposed to that area. And uh, we buy the companies that have the, the, the long-term reserves so they don't even have to do any a lot of exploration to prove up any more reserves. Not that they aren't, but uh, they've got long reserves. Their cost structure is fairly fixed. If anything, they can continue to be more and more efficient. And so we get a good sense of their free cash flow. And at $70, uh, $75 WTI, these are companies that are generating, in some cases, free cash flow yields anywhere from 8 to 12 to 13%, which is amazing. And the, all of the pressure that uh, they're feeling, especially in Canada, in terms of the, you know, the whole green agenda and so forth, our view is that, that if anything, that's just going to keep the prices of oil and oil in particular, probably bias a little bit more on the upsides. It's more difficult, more regulations, harder to, you know, harder to drill, harder to do more exploration and so forth. But that just gives the companies more free cash flow. And so what are they doing? They're buying back stock. So they're shrinking the float. The companies that we own, most of them are buying back a fair bit of stock, paying down debt. And in many cases, the debt is going to be almost gone on a lot of these companies in the next couple of years. And they're increasing dividends. So in our view, that's not a bad combination when you're in a market that tends to be a little expensive. And so that's what we do. We own some meg. MEG, Meg Energy in Canada, uh, a little bit of Suncor, also some Canadian natural resources, a couple of the companies that we own in that space. And again, long tail reserves, well-run companies, and, and companies that are in great financial position also. Since you mentioned ESG, I think we should hit on that. You have a funny way of uh, thinking about it, or <laughs> the acronym. But this, this is the, um, look, at least in the States, I mean, I deal with a lot of ETF issuers, right? And and ESG with what a lot of wholesalers are trying to push out to FAs, you know, the last several years. I think a lot of that has largely gone away. And some of these funds that ESG in their name, which were really just tech plays, right? they just try to take advantage of the momentum on the marketing side. Yeah, they're now starting to show some redemptions. But Talk about for the audience how we got to this point where EFG got so extreme at the point where fund companies, given that you were, you know, on that side of the business, really kind of pushed it. And now how that pendulum is swinging back. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give you, you know, again, my view on it. And I'm coming at it from a, a perspective of being very concerned about environment and stewardship of resources. I'm actually a pretty strong practicing Christian, you know, Protestant. So I, you know, I believe in hard work and, eth- you know, a good ethical approach to business and so on. And so they come with all of these interesting terms. I mean, who doesn't like, you know, environmental, social, and governance, right? These are, of course, everyone wants good governance, everyone wants good social schemes, and we want to be concerned about the environment. But I think that, you know, in in my view, it's really become an ideology, and it's become almost a religion, almost a cultist religion on the climate. And everybody's concerned about the climate, but some people just seem to have gone way overboard in making just incredibly outlandish claims in terms of what's going on with the environment and the effect of you know, CO2 in the air and the fossil fuels and all of that, which you're well aware of. And so it's almost like this become religious model for people and they're like, as it started to break out the last couple of years. And so to me, when they talked about, you know, I, I, we, we joke, we call environmental 
social and governance, we refer to it as, as um, extortion, shakedown and grift. I think those are the best words to use it. And what it does to me is it, it starts to overlay a whole different regulatory regime on the marketplace. So if you look at the environmental, what it really has become is no oil. How do we get rid of all fossil fuels? How do we get rid of this, you know, this oil and gas in industry, which is incredibly important to our whole industrial revolution and to our economies today, and it will be for decades to come. So just thinking that you can get rid of this and you can score companies on how much they can minimize CO2, I think is incredibly naive and dangerous if it's pushed too far, too fast on the marketplace. And then, of course, with that environmental also, it means how do we substitute other energy? So then you get into solar and wind and all out of these other energies, which can have their place, but they're very inefficient. In most cases, they're, you, know, you can't use them as base load and so forth. And, and so you end up with this whole forced agenda, which is increasing our cost structure of businesses and generating energy. And it's curtailing, in many cases, the development of oil and gas so that the prices are a little higher than they should be. It's giving power to OPEC, other countries to set the price, all of this, which then runs through our economy. And there's a real cost to that. But when they get into the social side, also, you, we've seen this. The social side starts to emphasize things like critical race theory. It gets into a whole bunch of things like abortion. And you're saying, well, what's that got to do with business? Exactly. They're pushing a whole, whole issue, the transgender, the LGBT. That all becomes part of the social agenda. It's like, you know, what people's sexual proclivities are. It should be the concern of corporations and how you're building products and so forth. And it just, this whole thing just spins out of control. And then when you get into the governance side of it, as we've seen in, there's been high profile cases, now it gets into race, race quotas. You know, you're now hiring people based upon their race, their gender, their sexual proclivities and so forth, not on merit and not on meritocracy, not on the best people, not trying to have equality of opportunities, but then forcing this kind of equality of outcome. And so what you have, Michael, is you just have this massive interference in the capital markets. It's just massive if you let this thing run. And it's dangerous. And it's going to lead to lower rates of return. It's going to lead to less efficiency, less productivity, hiring substandard people in many cases and so forth. And that's going to be really detrimental to the capital markets. So that's what we've kind of seen. And so you're right. There's been pushback because a lot of this stuff is insane. It's unjust. It's showing partiality where you shouldn't show partiality. It's laying, you know, businesses aren't hiring the best people. They're not holding people to the highest standards and so forth. It's pushing agendas like that have not, you know, business has no right to be pushing social, moral, ethical agendas that, that are get further and further detached from the running of a company and proper corporate governance and fiduciary responsibilities. What happened to all of that, right? So that's why we get really frustrated with it. And we go back and we look at companies. We say, no, we want the best boards. We want the best people. We want the best capital allocation. Lay out your program. We're not interested in, you know, virtue signaling and, you know, some employees running around dressed up like who knows what. We want, us, we want them in the factory doing their work and producing the best products, right? And we've seen, whether it's Silicon Valley Bank and some of the issues there, the wokeness, or whether you've seen it more recently, even on the suppliers to Boeing. I mean, you know, there's a whole list of, of things that you can point to where this is seeping into. Disney also has gotten way off track. And we think that we need to go back to our baseline again and back to, you know, businesses running for their constituency, remembering who their customers are, serving their customers properly, hiring the very best people, regardless of their gender, their color and so forth and putting the best people in the right seats. That's the way we want to see it. And I think that's starting to come back because 
If you don't do that, Michael, returns go down. People start to get impacted. If you're running pension funds, you're running institutional money and your returns are dropping, then you're not operating in a fiduciary way and the pressure is going to be all over you. And I think that's what we've seen this pushback against, you know, the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, Fidelities and so forth that are pushing a lot of that agenda on companies. The other thing, the last thing I'd say is that this ESG, it's almost like a social credit score. You either follow this or you're going to be punished by, you know, institutional investment services type of thing, right? I think that's just wrong. We need to push back against that. We need to have, again, companies run honestly, ethically to the highest standards, best people, and making sure they're serving their customers and clients so that they can sell the products and services that the clients are demanding, not what they think the HR department thinks should be shoved down people's throats. Do you get a sense that? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. The ESG side of things is really understood by, you know, those that are not pay attention to financial markets. I mean, again, I talk to a lot of advisors and I always ask them, do your own clients ask about ESG? And almost all of them say no. It seems like there's a, a lot of hype around it in, you know, certain circles, but for the vast majority of people, you don't have a clue. I agree. I agree. And most people, when they see ESG, they're just thinking, okay, they're trying to protect our forests and clean air, clean water and things like that. They don't see all of the other stuff below the surface, you know, hiring people based off an intersectionality chart, right? And what oppressed groups are in and so forth. They don't see that side of it. And that's because they haven't really, in many cases, most investors haven't been through the university systems and, you know, taken all the latest gender studies and all of the other nonsense that goes on, which is being pushed into the corporations. And we saw, I mean, look at Anheuser-Busch and, you know, the Bud Light situation where all of a sudden you use someone to sell your product that is the antithesis of your market. Like, what's that all about? How does that happen? And where's the CEO? Where's the direction of the companies? And that kind, that, that's just completely crazy thing to do. And yet that's what we see coming back. Now, we're seeing that pushback now because all of a sudden I think CEOs are asking more questions, what's happening? And the agenda, you know, we need to pull it back into the center again for the, the extremes. Got a question from somebody in the audience asking about how do you see ESG acceptance differing across different regions or states or different parts of the world? It's probably no different than, you know, looking at it uh, in the U.S. at least sort of a look at red versus blue. Right? It's probably the easiest way to do that. But are you seeing more dispersion in opinions around ESG? And are there any sort of commonalities in those that are very in favor of it? I think this is the case and I haven't done a great look at it. So I want to be, I want to, you know, that's a caution I put out front. I think the countries that have adopted the ESG in a way that I'd see maybe be more dangerous than others would be the traditional Western Anglosphere countries, right? So I'd say that, you know, the UK, Australia, Canada, United States, and some of the other European countries, I suppose, the ones that were traditionally the strongest economic countries, and I think the strongest Judeo-Christian-based countries in rejecting their core faith, which we've seen across all of these countries, 
they, I think they've replaced the ideology of a whole ESG movement. I think they've become more vulnerable to this religious kind of push of this new system, the wokeism, wokeism, if you will. But if you go in the Far East or you go into Africa or you go into parts of South America, which we don't do a lot of investing there, they're not imbibing of this at all. I mean, and uh, you're not seeing it in Japan or China. So I think, you know, it's, I think it is definitely regional and it's probably more hyper-concentrated in the, the countries that have been the strongest Western countries, which are under a lot of pressure. And we're seeing really the whole deterioration of our moral base in our countries. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the point is that, you know, you can argue having an ESG focus is, is almost a luxury, right? Because if you're you know, poor and don't have much food and much opportunity and you're in India, you don't really care about CO2 emissions. Right? You care about using coal. Right. And I would, I would argue, though, that I'm not sure that the, the whole environmental, you know, the whole ESG agendas, it does anything for the environment anyway. I think it's, my own view is that it's really a power grab and it's, it's moving capital into different industries like, the, you know, the solar, wind. I mean, nuclear would be, certainly I'd be positive on nuclear and I think that would be a great way to generate energy. But the whole EV thing, for example, I mean, are we really less, uh, creating less pollution by going to electric vehicles? Um, I don't think so. I don't think anyone's ever proven that. And uh, so I think, yeah, if we're going to go to hydrogen, you're going to go to nuclear, things like that. I'd be really pro that. But so I think the agenda doesn't really even solve the problems that they're trying to address, but it does line the pockets of a lot of different industries and businesses. And I'm a little bit cynical when it comes to that side of it. I always look at follow the money and, and that tends to, you know, to tell you a little bit more. Speaking about following the money, you sent me a note saying that you actually got a decent cash allocation. You're expecting a large pullback, I think, in markets. Let's broaden out to where we are in the cycle. What are your thoughts on the way things, the way things have acted so far this year? I have been very loud and arguably wrong in a lot of ways, but right in some others around this being one of the more bizarre and close bull markets in history, given that it looks like you've got a, a, a concentration AI bubble that's driving the large cap averages, but at the same time, most stocks are still below their Russell 3000-2021 peak, respectively. Where are we? Talk about the, the macro side and, and how you're thinking about markets here. Yeah, I mean, I probably wouldn't be too much different than yourself. I mean, we've seen, yeah, the market indexes and averages with the exception of the Russell, which I think is more indicative of really what's happening across the broader markets being weaker, but heavily concentrated in the typical companies, which everybody knows already, and a handful of others. And so we are concerned about that. And we are concerned about the fact that we're a little long in the tooth in in terms of this cycle. We've seen the cycle propelled in our view by massive deficit spending. So, you know, you look at your own country. I mean, you guys are just spending money like absolutely drunken sailors down there. And we're doing the same thing in Canada. So you've got, if, you know, if you're running a $2 trillion deficit and that becomes natural and normal, that's a normalized deficit. That's just not sustainable. In our own country in Canada, we've doubled our national debt in the last sort of three, four years with a prime minister who's completely and totally inept um, financially in terms of numbers and spending money. And so, yeah, so we're concerned with that, that with in- increasing interest rates and this money having, you know, the U.S. has to, Again, float, it has to, you know, roll over its debt. I mean, significant amount of debt, as you know, the U.S. debt is very short term. So they basically, it's an adjustable rate mortgage. Basically, there's so much money that's rolling over. That's got to put some pressure. And uh, we've also seen in Canada, the biggest thing up here was is mortgages. So, you know, the mortgage debt has gone from 2% maybe on your mortgage to two and, two and a quarter percent, now up to five, 6%. And people were fully stretched. So yes, we're, we think that there has to, at some point, 
be an economic turn down that will, will affect profitability and earnings of companies. And so therefore, we want to have some cash um, on the sidelines. The good thing is that cash now, even short-term cash, can make it 5% with virtually no risk. So in our view, when we talk to our clients, they're quite happy to have 20, 30% in, in cash as long as they're making 5% without any risk. And so um, that's, that's what we're doing. But yeah, we think we're a little long on the cycle and we just want to be very careful. And you know, we're value investors. So if a unique positions emerge, so if all of a sudden three or four companies emerged and we thought we're trading at 20, 30% discounts to intrinsic value, you know, the present value of the future cash flow and so forth, then we would invest in those and we would use a little bit of our cash if we can find great ideas. But yeah, we are a little bit concerned and we think that the deficits and the aggressive spending, you know, just, it just can't continue without some kind of reset or penalty or some kind of pain in the marketplace. So, I mean, you're not doing that based on technicals or anything. You're just looking at this from a time and sort of logic perspective. Exactly. That's, yeah, because again, we're looking three to five years. And so we just want to be careful. And a lot of our investors, you know, they're wealthy people and they're not trying to necessarily track the index perfectly. That's not their preoccupation. Their preoccupation is don't lose my money, keep it compounding for me at a reasonable basis, and we'll be very happy. And I mean, I, I look at a guy, I mean, I followed Warren Buffett, one of the person, one of the first investors that I got to really follow back in 1990 was Buffett. And I've been down to, I think about 14 or 15 of his annual meetings over the years. And we used to go down with a whole team of people. And, you know, and you look at Buffett too, carrying around a little bit more cash. I think, I think anybody who's just disciplined looks at this saying, you know what? I get 5%. Market's done really well. We've got a lot of geopolitical issues. We've got absolutely inept political leadership in so many countries around the world. And, and you've got deficits running at record levels. The global debt to GDP is way over 300%, you know, debt to GDP. This, you know, there has to be a break in here somewhere. And so be prepared. And that's our, our investors are quite happy to be prepared. They don't need to be getting eking out return every single week, every single month and at the same rate the market's doing. If we can protect them on the downside and then grab a whole bunch of upside in a, in a, in a bounce back. I mean, credit to you to have that type of a client base. I think you and I would probably both agree that um, stickiness is not as sticky as it used to be. When it comes to investor money, increasingly people are short term, turnover is higher. You know, the long term for most people is more like two months as opposed to two years. That's a dynamic which you can argue makes it in some ways easier to be a value investor because, you know, you can identify and stick to that approach if you really believe it while fewer other people are sticking to it. But at the same time, it makes it hard to really build a business. Right. Yeah, we've, that's the way we've marketed and talked to our clients. And that our client, I mean, we have virtually almost all the financial assets of our clients, generally speaking. So it's not like we're just running a fund and they put a certain allocation into it. We run segregated accounts along with some funds. And so they're expecting us to, to protect the capital. And that's the way we prepare it. And over time, you generally will outperform, keep with the market or outperform it anyway. Because again, if you can keep from the drawdowns, as you, again, you've been in the business, you know, if you can avoid the torpedoes and you can avoid the drawdowns and then capture a good portion of the upside, you will do better over time. And the other factor that comes into it, similar to you guys in the, in the US, but certainly in Canada, where we're more, we're heavily, more heavily taxed overall, is capital gains taxation. So if you can, as you know, you can compound and avoid paying tax by compounding and keeping your money in an unrealized growth of capital, then you're going to have much better returns over time. And we, again, sit down with clients and try to 
work on that, your, your after tax rates of return. So if you can stick to an with an investment that can compound for five or six or seven years rather than buying and selling every six months or every year and generating capital gain, your returns will be higher and you don't have to generate your you know, pre-tax rate of return doesn't have to be as high. I, I mean, as you know, as you work through those numbers. So that's what we, we try to do. It makes it easier, I think, to focus on the businesses, understand the CEOs, the strategy of the companies, treat them like your own. Because in the companies that we own, you really get to know them well and they almost come like your children. And, and it's sometimes tough to do a switch, which, I mean, every year we probably do two, three switches out of a company into another one because of opportunities of, you know, we think maybe just aren't the same in that business or we made a mistake or the valuation is high. So there's constant turnover, but it's very methodical, very careful, very strategic. And then the cash holding is there just to, in this kind of environment, just to be, you know, keep powder dry so that we can pounce, if you will. We've got a list of companies we'd love to own, but they're just a little bit too expensive. And then we just wait and see if there's a price break. So about the sell discipline, I think it's, you know, it's very easy to identify an undervalued company that you don't own than to identify an overvalued company that you own. Because the moment you own it, right, you don't think it's overvalued, right? Let's talk about that because I think that's a, an important point. It's always easier to buy than to sell. Absolutely. And it's easier to buy when everyone else is buying. It's just amazing how you just are itching to buy when the price is moving up, right? And everyone else is buying. And so even as a professional after 34 years, it is so difficult not to move with the masses and the sell discipline is tricky. So what we've done is we just spend a lot of time on valuing the business. We run models. We will run you know, a new model. Why well, I say it, we'll update the model at least quarterly as earnings come in. And then we will track that daily. We have a printout of you know, what the companies are trading at, the price, you know, the discount and so forth. And so if they get above a certain level, then we are becoming more and more methodical just in just sell or reduce the position. And you're quite right. It, you fall in love with your companies and it's a dangerous thing to do. The company does not know that you own it. The company doesn't care about you. And uh, you have to get over that sometimes. And so uh, the best way to, I think, do that is to stick to price disciplines and discounts to intrinsic value and then surpluses. You know, it was trading at a, a premium and then lighten up when you get to certain premiums um, and certainly stop buying. The other thing that we do is we try to, again, uh, every year we try to have, as I say, two Three would be probably on the high end, but one or you know, two at least uh, substitutions. So we'll go for a company that we think is a good company. Maybe it's trading an okay price, but its future isn't going to be as high growth as another one. And then we make sure we're constantly trying to prune. We call that pruning our portfolio and then putting better companies in. And it's like largely keeps us out of trouble. But yeah, we don't execute perfectly. As you know, no one does. And that's one of the toughest things is the sell discipline because you do get to know the companies. And sometimes you don't really want to pay the tax either if you're going to generate a capital gain. And so you have to just stick to the numbers and try to take the emotion out of it as best as possible. I know you're more on the equity side, but I am curious, speaking about undervalued, at what point are bonds undervalued enough, right, to be a viable alternative to equities? Yeah, good question. Good question. Yeah, because I'm, yeah, you're right. I'm much more on the equity side. Yeah, we would, I mean, we, yeah, we generally on the fixed income side have kept ourselves to, to the average duration of our portfolios just since, you know, since I've been running the segregated accounts for private clients for the last 14 years, our average duration, we've kept it probably about two to three years. So we have just basically been coup uh, picking the coupons and not playing the yield curves moves. We are watching it now as the long end moves up. 
And if we do go into recession, we're looking at ways to then step into the long end of the market and take a little bit of, you know, hopefully capital gains on the way down. But I haven't been comfortable with that yet, even though we peaked in the end was at the end of October, the rates really ran up high. I just, I'm still not convinced that we've got all this inflation out of the system. I mean, I'm hoping that we have, but there's so many policy decisions that are out of our control so that we just try to be careful with investors' money. So our average duration on the fixed income side, we're keeping it relatively, I'd say two to three years. We're grabbing the interest rate at that point. We don't have a lot of downside. And we can quickly sell and uh, redeploy if we have to. But we'd want to see rates of return over a couple of year period that we're going to be, you know, 15 to 20% rates of return and feel comfortable that the, the, the economy was weakening quite a bit. So they, they'd have to haul down interest rates. I, I'm still not sure. I'm still sitting on the fence in terms of what the next little while looks like. Do rates actually on the long end go a bit higher? I mean, there's a good argument that could happen despite all this debt, just because of, uh, just because of deglobalization and some of the longer term trends that are taking place. And so what we do is we're just hedging ourselves and being very careful, not trying to go out and on a limb to, to, to make some money where we could lose. It's just the returns aren't large enough in many cases, unless you really put on a lot of risk. And so to me, it's a little bit asymmetric. And so that's why we prefer the, you know, making most of our money in the equity markets and protecting it in the debt markets. Is it fair to say that if you're going to be a true value investor, you have to by nature have a concentrated portfolio, that it's not sort of a style that you can apply across hundreds of different stocks? I think so. Now, it, it, would, it would, tend, would depend on the number of people you have to do the research. But I think the optimal way to run money, I'm biased, it's my opinion. I know other people are going to disagree with me, but that is to run a focused portfolio. So in, when I say focus, I mean, our top 10 holdings would be, you know, probably 60% of the portfolio, 60 per 60, 65% of the equity portfolio. And then the other 10 to 15 would be the remainder. And I think that for a couple of reasons, first of all, it's really hard to find great opportunities. And so when you do, you want to latch on to it. Second, it's very hard to follow these companies and really know them well and to really understand the business competitors, the industry, all of the different challenges, most of the challenges that you need to know if you're going to be an investor. And so in terms of attention and detail, it's better if you have a smaller name number of companies. And then you have less companies canceling out in your good returns with companies that maybe underperform. I think that the, if, if you, so one of, one of my, one of the, one of the, my mentors early on, he said, Jonathan, if you want to look at the wealthiest people in the world, go to the Forbes 500 list, right? You go to the Forbes 500 list, you're going to look at the wealthiest people in the world. And he'll say, how many businesses do those people own? You know, do they own 500 businesses like you would own in a couple of Fidelity mutual funds? No. They own usually a handful of companies and they've owned them for extended periods of time. And so I do think, and this is my bias, that the best way to create wealth is focus, knowledge, and patience. And, and so I think that's, you know, that's, I, I think you're exactly right. Most value investors are focused because they really take larger positions and they research them in you know, more detail than you would if you were just finding ways to play secular trends. Or yeah, short short term opportunities. Jonathan, as we wrap up here, for those who want to track more of your thoughts, more your work, or just kind of learn more about your way of looking at the world, where would you point them to? Probably our website would be the my website would be the best, which is just www.rocklink. And that's link with a C. So R-O-C-K-L-I-N-C. So the link at the end does, is a C, not a K dot com. And there we have under newsletters and so forth, you'll see videos, all of our quarterly reports. 
we usually post anything on there, even this conversation I'm having with you, you know, we, we would push, a, we would put a link on presentations that I do out at conferences and so forth. So that's probably the best way to track me down in, in terms of following us. I'm on, I mean, I'm on Twitter and uh, different things. I don't necessarily use that extensively, but I use it to follow people like yourself and others. But that's probably the best way to get me just a website. Appreciate everybody joining. Hopefully you all enjoyed it. And hopefully I'll see you on the next space. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much, Michael. All the best. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.